Hi, and welcome to a Really Good Enough Parent podcast. My name is Christine Altwies. I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist, and for 30 years I worked in intercountry and domestic adoption and family counseling. I'm the clinical director at Pona Roots Counseling Center, where our focus is on family systems, and I'm also a mother. I've created a Really Good Enough Parent podcast in response to what we see every day in our clinic. Childhood mental health issues are skyrocketing, and it doesn't have to be this way. I know that really good enough parenting is a skill we all possess. As a parent myself, I also understand how easy it is to lose sight and to mistrust or panic in the face of a melting down child or an impudent teen. The good news is that you have what it takes to help your child. Take a breath, see your child's innocence. You can do this. This podcast will feature some of the incredible people I've been lucky enough to meet in my life. No two have raised their children the same, and all have done a really good enough job. You'll hear new perspectives on how to handle tough situations. You'll be reminded of how your own parenting takes its cue from childhood. And hopefully, you'll feel invigorated to go do a really good enough job at this most rewarding of all human endeavors. A Really Good Enough Parent podcast is designed to be story time for adults. So thanks for being here with me today. I do appreciate you. Enjoy the show. On a really good enough parent podcast, I am excited to be sharing with you my friend, Dr. Crystal Kwok. Crystal is one of those friends who never shows signs of stress, and she seems to get more done in a week than most of us get done in a month. She recently launched her award-winning film called Blurring the Color Line, which is available now on PBS and most streaming platforms. She was carrying a full university teaching load recently while finishing her dissertation, managing her three college-age children, and still participating in a lot of community events and uh, hosting her own podcast called Quack Talk. Um, She casually mentioned as we were wrapping up this interview that she's just accepted a teaching position starting in September at the University of Hong Kong, where she'll be teaching post-modern feminist theory. So with all that, clearly Dr. Kwok has lots to share. Her perspectives on being a really good enough parent are interesting and definitely worth your time. So thanks for standing by this episode of a really good enough parent podcast with Dr. Crystal Kwok. Welcome back to another episode of a really good enough parent podcast. As usual, I am so excited. I need new words for that whole thing because so excited no longer does it. I am just really, really, really thrilled to have Dr. Crystal Kwok as my guest today. I have known Crystal for a number of years through a woman's book and sort of talk salon thing we do. Uh, I've come to know and deeply respect Dr. Kwok. Thanks for being on a really good enough parent podcast. Thank you. Thank you. Honor is mine. So glad to see you here. And let's just casual yeah Yeah, we're so casual um so and the reason that i wanted to have you on is because you are one of those iconic women who has a really 
interesting career. You, at a later age in life, um, discovered um, a new academic calling. Um, you also have three amazing children and a partner, and you had a life before you did all this. So mm. one of the things that I think is really important for parents to remember is that there doesn't have to be any one way to become a parent or to live your life. And that especially as a woman, you can have kids, you can have a career, you can change your mind halfway through your life that you want to do something else. You can be big and bold and still be a great parent while doing lots of things that are really important, feeding your own soul, taking care of your own inspirations and aspirations. So let's start at wherever you want to start, Dr. Kwok. Tell me about your life. <laughs> how you got I'm never going to get into that. I feel like there's a cynical something about that title now. Um, anyway, uh, yeah, thank you for the space. Um, you know, I just want to say that as, as a parent, there's no right, you were saying it, you know, there's, there's no right way to do it. And I think sometimes you have to slip through the cracks in order to kind of find that process, right? I don't think um, anyone has the right to say there is that perfect way. Um, but I do believe that you have to kind of stumble on a few things because um, that's where you grow and that's where you change, right? Um, my, my biggest thing, if I had to have a theme for today's conversation with you, is to question what it means to learn. Because I feel like a lot of parents are struggling with that idea and we get so sucked up, especially with Asian parents, you know, we have that, and you know, I hate that stereotypical thing like, oh, are you the helicopter mom? Are you the tiger mom? You know, cause that's the assumption. And because there's a lot of pre prevalence of that type of way of parenting, but at the same time, you know, is that, is it cultural? Is it just a personality issue of a control freak person? Um, or are there the social pressures of people around you all going to Harvard and saying, well, you know, that's the only way you're going to achieve success. And um, when we have a chance to get into like the nitty gritties of the stumbling blocks in my um, parenting phases, um, it's just that these, it, you keep questioning what it means to learn. And I'm still questioning that today because it's a problem if we give ourselves a certain standard defin or definition of what it means to learn and what it means to succeed, because it, it doesn't work that way now. I'm sure you agree. It just, it just doesn't. Yes. As someone who's doing my PhD on the heels of you having just completed your PhD. Yeah. yeah we don't, it. we don't often know until later in life. Right. And a big part of, as you said, falling through the cracks is where we do the learning. Um, so can we share with people sort of a little bit of your origin story so that there's some context here? So you yeah. were born and raised. I was born in San Fran, San Francisco, but I moved to Hong Kong when I was three. Uh, my dad's from Hong Kong and my mom is um, American born. So I've kind of had that, the, the two cultures entangled throughout my childhood. So even when I was in Hong Kong, we would come back every summer to do summer camp and do all the American things. Um, and then I eventually moved back to the States when I was 10, finished school there. And then um, in the middle of college, I got an opportunity to go back to Hong Kong and entered the movie industry. And that's where I got my whole kind of uh, career in TV, films, TV, radio, talk show, all that stuff. So and then I met my husband there and all three of my kids were born in Hong Kong, raised in international schools. And then we moved back to here in Honolulu uh, in 2015 after a year in, in, in between in Taiwan. So that's kind of a rough gist of where I am. 
And when yes. you say American born to those who don't know, <clears throat> that's short for American born Chinese. Correct. Okay. Just a- and, and when I say that too, is because my mom is more American than me. You know, mm-hmm. she having grown up in San Francisco all her life has a very much more American mentality than I feel like I do. I like to claim myself not as Asian American, but a transnational um, female because um, there is a difference. I think there's a difference in understanding the linking the linking of cultures um, that don't reduce us to like one place or the other, you know. Okay, and you're just hitting the tip of the iceberg about culture and how we identify because a big part, because <laughs> here we go, a big part of your background and one of the things that I admire about you is this PhD you recently worked on um, called Blurring the Color Line, a movie that resulted from that. And I, and I know we're gonna maybe touch and go over a lot of things as we talk about parenting, but I think as parents, um, who we are, where we come from is really important in how we raise our kids and how we see our kids and how we see our role as parents. Um, So I wanna make sure we don't forget to talk about blurring the color line and how that fits into all this and how it's affected you as a parent, as a human, how it's maybe impacted your kids and their idea of who they are, if at all. Um, So you had your children sort of at a traditional time in life. You were in your thirties. Yeah. Okay. And yeah. when you decided to have kids, what were you doing at that point? Uh, so I had already established my career. You know, um, I was working really well, I, but I was very ready. I've always wanted family. In, in fact, I, I've been desperate for babies since I was, you know, like 25. And um, I remember before I got married that. I told, you know, even in my talk show, I I said it publicly. I said, you know, if I don't find a partner by the time I'm a certain age, I gave myself that pressure. I'm just going to adopt or, or, or something like that. And and I was just so um, obsessed with the idea of when a a woman should have babies and, and um, how much I wanted one for myself. And it's funny because the partner part wasn't a priority for me. It was really the babies, you know, been there, done that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's interesting what our biological pull is as women and nurturers and future parents. Yeah, yeah. And we don't talk about, you know, all the processes to get that lead to that point, right? Whether we've had abortions or miscarriages. Um, I just want to throw that in because, you know, in my, after I had my three kids, I wanted to adopt, and I don't know if I ever told you that, but we were, went through the process. Um, I was in Hong Kong. We met with the social workers. Um, we had the social worker come to the house to meet the kids, to talk to them, and see how that would all work out. And um, and so we put that process in, and then I got pregnant. And then I got, wow, okay, so I wasn't meant to adopt. I wasn't meant to have my fourth kid. And then this baby grew well, it wasn't a baby yet, um, had a defect. And my doctor said that it wouldn't survive. Mm -hmm. And thinking about the abortion laws now, and if I were in the wrong place at the wrong time, that I'd have to give birth to um, a baby that would not survive past, I don't know, a certain amount of time. It's just, you know, all these thoughts are are still swimming in my head because of these these regulations today. But anyway, Mm -hmm. so so I went on this kind of like roller coaster ride of, um, okay, I'm going to adopt. And then, oh, we shelved that because I meant to have my own. And then that did not happen. I had to get, I had to have an abortion. And then, um, 
but then at that point we're like okay well we're not going to go back the other way so i was just like okay this is my life i i meant to have three kids and and so that was a very um trying process because you can't talk to people about these things and it's crazy how common it is and yet nobody talks about it nobody talks about miscarriages nobody talks about like your 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 desperate wants for babies that idea of wanting to nurture another soul and it's just like crazy that we don't have that space so i'm really appreciative of this yeah it is i mean i've never talked about it here it just hasn't come up but i when i was in the throes of knowing that i needed to become a parent and i was not possible due to the marriage i was in where it wasn't supported I went through such depression and crazy times. I went to counseling. I went, I joined a um, child-free support group for people who had decided to become child-free and society was questioning the women. They were all women in the group, right? And the pressures they had to undergo on a daily basis from colleagues and friends and family who were not understanding their child-free um decision i was there not on my own accord i was there under duress i was trying to figure out how to live child free and it ultimately just didn't work for me um but yeah it is huge and i think you know the pressure that society sort of unwittingly puts on women the expectation that this is what we're meant to do is heavy can i ask you i know i'm not supposed to you know just go back and forth but you know like your your adoption like how did you was that something that you had in your mind that you've always wanted to, or was that something that just kind of came on your plate? Yeah, no. Um, so my first child I adopted, I was single when I applied. Um, I had just left my husband and I had given birth to my first child um, out of wedlock. So I'd left my husband knowing I needed to become a parent. He was not able to see that vision. So I had to leave him and we're still close friends. It was very difficult for me. Um, but so empowering to know what yeah. I really needed to do to have yeah. the courage of my convictions to leave a man I really loved because yeah. I knew I needed to be a parent. And I was ironically working in the adoption industry during that time. <laughs> so I was helping families become families while, you know, at night crying and drinking heavily to try and figure out how to cope with this um, horrible wow. feeling that I would never be a parent. So yeah, yeah, I applied. So I gave birth and then I applied to adopt um, Jaja as a single initially. Yeah. So I guess the point here is that, you know, for people who know they need to become a parent or for people who um, are trying to figure out, and as you mentioned early on, as women, it's a lot harder because we have ticking clocks, we have social pressure, we have the idea that to do one means to not do the other, career, education, parenting, right? Yeah. Um, these things are all seen as competing, but they really so juggling, Yeah. I think juggling the parent work thing. Um, there are a lot of mixed ways of looking at that too, right? Cause you've got that whole lean in kind of mentality. Um, and then you've got the, okay, well, let's sort your priorities out and what's going to be, you're going to be a mother first or a, you know, a career person first. And for me, I guess in, in Hong Kong, I was lucky enough to have, um, support, you know, we had domestic helpers who helped with the kids. So that was, you know, it sounds so privileged, but it, it was the way it was. And, um, but having said that, I did prioritize my parenting. When I did have my babies, I was able to work around it. Um, so for example, I was really kind of um, 
I, I was just insistent on creating another piece of work, even though I had my family, I wasn't willing to give it up. So when my first born was taking his naps, I would write a scene during his nap. Like I would be, I would have to be a little bit more um, specific and, you know, constructive with my timing. Even if I was tired, I would say, okay, well, that's how I'm going to get it done. And so I would slip these, and then I think the, you know, the idea of in-between spaces comes up again, this idea of blurring, because you have to find, as a mother, you have to find those little spaces. Oh, there's a pocket. Oh, I've got 15 minutes. I might as well do that. And that's how I rolled. I would try to fill in all those little holes with all the things I wanted to do so that um, there was no downtime, but it was like good, good, you know, like, overflow of of productivity and so that's that's the way i i did it and i was i managed to um you know stage some smaller um theatrical productions and smaller film projects and so i was very fortunate to be able to to juggle the two and i think what i'm hearing through all this is a deep level of confidence that you had in what you were doing which is not a gift or a quality that every woman possesses. And I think often parenting can really whack the confidence out of you, mm. out of one, if mm. we're not careful, right? Yeah. Um, and the idea that we have to be 24-7 hands-on with our kids and that to do something else means to take time away from your child. But I think one of the things that we've learned is that children who have mothers who are engaged and working and passionate about something else that they're pursuing those mothers can bring a lot to the parenting dynamic for their kids, right? Yeah. Not only are they yeah. modeling, taking care of themselves and pursuing a passion, they're showing yeah. the child the appropriate, you know, you exist and you're wonderful, but you're not, you know, you're not the only thing in the world. Yeah. Um, and even within, if you're going to have more than one kid, is to know that they are all slices of this pie and that they do not consume you whole you've got to kind of give yourself that space to have that different slice you know and um it's hard because sometimes if one child is more needy or more problematic um you feel like your whole world's going to be consumed by that one thing but um you know i'm going to jump ahead and say i did have a lot of problems with my older son with um substance abuse and that's really kind of where it was that rude awakening and i had this um, education consultant lady who just said, you got to remember, you've got two other kids there. You can't just like drop those balls. Um, and you got to keep your life going because that's, what's going to keep you going. And that's kind of going back to my doctorate. I was studying and I was like, oh my God, um, I had to turn in a final and you're going to get this when you do that again. Um, I've got a freaking paper to write, but then my son's going to like he just relapsed and I am in a play with my daughter for the Nutcracker. How the hell am I supposed to juggle all this at the same time? Do I drop one? I was going to, I was going to drop my program. I was going to say, oh, um, you know, I got criticized for not going to rehearsal because I had to deal with my son. So all these things fall, you know, when it rains, it pours. So what, what do you do when that time comes? You've got to prepare to be grounded with something because then otherwise things will fall below you. So what grounded you, can... you in those moments? You said grounded by something. So what was your grounding? Well, you know, I think psychologically it was my studies uh, because I felt like I couldn't, I wasn't willing to give that up. I mean, or maybe that wasn't the grounding. It was more of my idea that I needed to hold on to something that won't allow me to fall on the deep end. Um, and and that was maybe my excuse to hang on to that as as an anchor. 
You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And I think the knowledge, and this is the thing about parenting is that we have to know that there are times to hold tight and times to loosen our grip. And I think, you know, when you were, when your kids were younger, you did a different kind of hands-on parenting. And at this age, I think the time frame you're talking about, they were all in their teens. Yeah. Right. So they need yeah. you in a different way. Yeah. Um, and yeah. so the grounding, I think, always has to be within ourselves, right? Yes. It can't be our kids. Um, and just, I feel the need to say, because I do have listeners and friends who have dedicated their lives to being stay-at-home moms. And I mm -hmm. just want to say, if that's your jam, man, that's amazing. Do it. <laughs> like that can also work out so well. And you can create amazing humans by doing that. But I think the the takeaway for me is as a woman, you've got to do what you know you were meant to do. And if being a full-time parent is it, do it. Um, but if you feel the need to do other things outside of the home, you've got to pursue that because if you don't, that'll end up, you know, coming out in, in weird ways and your kids will feel it. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I use my sister as an example because she um, just recently went through a divorce and she's had such a structure with her kids. Even when we were, when our kids were babies, we would go to uh, see each other at the park and she'd say, she'd just get up and leave and go, Oh, sorry. I've got nap time for my kids. I got to go. So some people have, the ways they can't break the structure and that's the way she rolled and for me i can't structure because i always am changing my um plans so i think to like to your point is to really know what your what your thing's about you know and to work with it but then how do we challenge those because sometimes some things aren't so healthy to hold on to can i be a little bit more organized you know i feel like that's maybe one of my weaknesses and how do i learn to do that um how does my sister learn how to relax so that she can enjoy life a little bit more and not be restricted by these walls that she built so i feel like just to recognize what our boundaries are and how do we push beyond it is also an important thing and, and also goes back to what does it mean to learn right, right? to always be open-minded and always be trying to learn and and really question your motivations and your tactics and your habits in a healthy way question them yeah but not necessarily criticize them. And as far as the organizational piece, I just want to say, I think as women, I feel often when I look around my home, that is often a trigger for me. If I see mess or I see what manifests in my mind, what is the manifestation of a lack of organization for lack of a better word. But I think that's a little bit of social pressure and a little bit of maybe too much media or too much, I don't want to tell you why you're feeling this way, but I know for me, it often represents a feeling of um, not having done enough as a parent or not doing enough as a parent that my home doesn't look great or everything doesn't have a perfect place or a label. Um, mm. And I would just caution us because that might not be necessarily a healthy way to live also, yeah. right? I mean, yeah. you are so organized. You get so much done. You have just done like a year of hitting every city on the entire mainland of the USA with your movie for premieres of your movie and guest speakerships and talks and all that. So I don't know how you're not organized because- you're Well, what balls there. do I drop? You don't see though. When I come home and then I see, of course, piles of laundry and that's what I hate too. What, what, what's the thing about parenting is you try to do things for yourself. You go off and you do it and you're proud of it. You come back and you still got to do the shit at home. So can we talk about that? Yeah. Well, so this is what I'm talking about, though. What I often say to parents who I, you know, treat in my counseling center who are struggling, and it's usually the wives, the husbands are yeah. usually like, eh, whatever, right? Doesn't even cross yeah. their radar. And not to gender stereotype people, but it tends to show up as a female Absolutely. thing. Agreed. Um, 
what I say to them is instead of seeing that as all your shortcomings, why not see that as signs of life and signs of a happy, dynamic mm. household full of children who are comfortable and able to do their stuff and aren't like so nervous about something being out of place because they're going to get a yeah. whooping, right? So see like that, that as a happy home. I always think of pictures I saw of Pablo Picasso's various homes in the south of France that were always like yeah. full of so much crap, like yeah. you, the pictures of him sitting there in a pile of rubble. <laughs> Right. And that's like art, you know, he was right, making yeah. art. So that was that's beautiful. Nice. I feel like my best is like that too. Um, and, you know, I'm going to throw in a little academic um, stuff there, you know, with my feminist studies, you know, there's always that idea of saying embrace the messiness. And so I'm going to take what you just said to the literal terms and to the metaphoric terms of what messiness means, because yes, we have the messy household that like you say, which I love, um, which kind of like signifies your, <laughs> your full and rich life. Um, but at the same time, um, you know, metaphorically, I love it that things are meant to kind of get um, messy and to mix and to entangle and to get a little bit um, not so neat so that it really complicates our life in a, in a beautiful way, which, you know, you can never really compartmentalize anything. And back to our original conversation about identity and culture, you can't compartmentalize identity uh, and culture. You know, my husband's Jewish. My kids are, uh, you know, half Chinese, half Jewish. So, you know, when it goes to the box ticking, which I can't believe we still have these boxes and these forms, but I did ask my son one time, my younger son, what did you think, um, if you had to choose one, which would it be, you know? And it's kind of a funny conversation because it's like, where do they draw their identity sense of who they are from? What influences them more? Who are they more attracted to, like when they go and date somebody later? You know, it's just really kind of fascinating, especially you too, with mixed kids in the house. Like, what do you, you know, what does it mean? Yeah. We've had a lot of conversations. My two oldest sons are half Swedish American and half Chinese, Chinese American. And um, they haven't been raised in Hawaii where every, most people are Hapa. It was yeah. never discussed or really an issue. And then they went off to, you know, California universities where there were a lot of Chinese students and they'd be yeah. sitting in a class full of like Chinese students from China often. And, uh, you know, started to really struggle with or confront their identity issues. Um, so I would love to talk about blurring the color line just because it's such an important thing and you've done such a bunch of work for the past six years on it. Yeah. And now it's available on PBS for people to watch. We'll have everything in the show notes, but can you tell me about that journey just a little bit, just so people know what it is? Sure. Uh, so my grandmother on my mother's side uh, grew up in uh, Augusta, Georgia. And, you know, she had a pretty deep Southern accent and yet she was very Chinese. And this kind of, you know, interesting mix um, really fascinated me and she never really talked about it. So I was very close to her growing up and, you know, over champagne lunches, she would tell me about little stories of growing up in the store and being bored and doing things. And so it really kind of inspired me to write something about her. Um, but as it kind of came together, um, working with larger forces like Black Lives Matter and the anti-Asian hate crimes that kind of unfolded over the process of my filming, um, it created a bigger uh examination on on race relations and again going back to my school you know my academics is the influence of i of my performative and feminist lens on what an in-between space looks like 
for me, I applied that to this blurry middle of being not quite black or white and not quite being this or that and just embracing that middle space, that messiness. And what does that mean um, uh, in our lives? How do we apply that idea into kind of the multiple spaces that we exist in and, and can embrace and not resist it? You know, because a lot of times we feel so um, compelled to to find a certain space that defines us. And we're not allowed to have two things, you know? Why can't we have all these multiple ways of knowing? And that's a very feminist way of understanding life and people resist it because it's complicated and it's it, blurry. They're like, oh, it's not, it's not clear. We don't like this because it makes us uncomfortable. But then I'm thinking, well, no, because it's blurry because it's multiple layers. It's not because it's not clear because it's so complex and interesting that we have to dive into those in between spaces. So that's kind of how it all came about. So I had a great, um, you know, thematic approach to this in between space of the Chinese and the segregated South um, by applying this blurry lens. And it really, uh, for anybody who's thinking of doing further education, I highly recommend, you know, feminist studies and things like that, because it just gives you a new lens on anything you, 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 approach and think about, you know? Feminist studies, the reason they're important, the reason feminist studies are important, if you could just sort of maybe in one sentence again, repeat, because I, I think people are scared by the idea. They see it as maybe sort of yeah. separating yeah. Um, and calling out or being anti-male to go into yeah. this whole topic. Um, how would you define the idea of feminist studies and why they're important to make a healthier world? Well, for me, feminist studies is really uh, taking a, a multi-layered approach to to your vision, um, because in that way we're resisting these binary ways of thinking, which is kind of what our dominant, um, you know, look at all the institutions that are that are run by old white men. You know, no offense out there, but it's just been the way, and we've kind of standardize that so anything that fits around that and everything that's othered um, is marginalized and just kind of excused for being that outside group and um, it's very problematic because then that's kind of like creating a norm that we are defined around and so by going to this blurry multi-layered way of looking at things it it it, it dismantles that you level the playing ground and say, hey, I can do this too. I don't have to, you know, feel like just because I'm a woman, a woman of color, um, an aged woman, you know, all these different elements that we think that are um, hindering our ways to succeed. This gives us that means to say, fuck that. And, you know, we can do whatever we want. That's so, what I think it is. Okay. And essentially, it's really, it's not so much about being a woman, it's not so much about focusing on a female perspective, feminist studies. It's more about saying all of the studies heretofore have been, if we were to define them, male studies, right? Like if we were to define the way the world has educated itself up until now, with the yeah. exception of those who have looked at feminism, the entire platform, our entire educational paradigm, feminists would mm -hmm. say, mm -hmm. has been male-centric. Right. Yeah. So really, what we're doing the power structures. Where? What is it? What is it built off of? And why are things framed the way they are? So again, looking outside the frame gives us that freedom to see a little deeper, a little further. Yeah. You know? And this yeah. 
totally ties into your movie, Blurring the Color Line, and the idea of women who work and have children having messy homes. Um, And for people who are afraid of the change that's coming in our country or in our world, hopefully, right? This is all connected. And I think what we're saying is that if we hold on to rigid ideas about the way things must be or should be or used to be with the idea that we've idealized the way things used to be, some people do, as having been the best way or the only way. So any change is scary. Any new stuff is scary. Any blurring or mess or trans anything, intersectionality, anything, feminist, anything is scary. So what we do maybe is go back to the idea that if we trust the human body, let's say we can't trust anything at all, but we can trust the human body as something that we can relate to, right? Each of us have a human body and the human body is constantly changing, right? As you grow, your body is constantly evolving and changing. If you get a cut or an injury, your body adjusts, adapts, changes, Mm -hmm. right? So Mm -hmm. I don't know where I'm going with this, Uh, but where I'm going with this is that I think if we look at change as necessary and as parents, we want to embrace change. We don't want to raise children who are fear-based in their outlook. We don't want them to think that everything has to be tightly controlled. Absolutely. And, you know, but it's hard because we're not, you know, the system has created us us monsters to to work a certain way, to think a certain way, to follow these institutional ways of understanding. And that's why indigenous studies is so threatening, why critical race studies is so threatening, because it dismantles their power system. Right. And um, and there's so much more to learn that we can learn through our bodies, you know, to learn through our senses as opposed to learning through text um, and 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 what what are other ways of knowing that kind of um, empower us to see things in a different way. And there's just so much more to how we can think about life, you know, because if we do define ourselves around that, then man with us you know aging female bodies well there's what's there to look forward to you know all we can do is just like criticize what every day waking up with all these new creaks and pains right i mean what's that's not fun and i'm trying to tell myself my body's getting better every day so i'm sticking with that idea <laughs> go do some, some more push-ups and tell yourself your yeah well that's today. the thing we have to all compensate with other other strengths right yeah, yeah. Yeah. One of my guests the other day, um, Howard, said that, you know, change is coming. And as parents, if we don't prepare our kids for the change, then we're not doing them, you know, a service. We're doing them a disservice. So I wonder if it's almost the other way around, though, like how they're teaching us how to prepare for change, because this younger generation, you know, you, you mentioned trans, you'd mentioned like, you know, so let's talk about queer space, how this is a, an in-between space. This is a blurry space. And we apply that. I feel like applying a queering lens to life is also something that we of the older generation didn't grow up with. So it's a harder for parents to grapple with that, um, to, to come in terms with what it means to be non-binary, because, you know, we can say we're, you know, we, we apply these new terms that aren't really new anymore, like woke and, you know, whatever. Um, but you, and, and then you can't keep up with the terms of how you describe anybody who's who's not um, binary, whatever that means, too. So um, I think we're learning from our younger generation of how we see things um, from a non-binary lens um, in a deeper way 
of just 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 embracing who we are as we are and not defining what that non-binaryness means you know we get caught up with that and it's like okay well who cares <laughs> super important point yeah i think what maybe i meant or maybe if we were to go back to howard and say howard clarify what you said in the last podcast i think maybe the idea is that when you have young children and you're still showing them the world before they can show you the world that's when you need to be open to the idea of diversity inclusion equity all the good things right that's mm-hmm. what you're modeling for your young children but i think mm-hmm. you bring up a really important point and this is that a lot of parents struggle the most violently with their children when the children start to individuate and push back and try to work on their own identities. And that's when many parents struggle the most with their children, yep. right? Rather than yep. expectations, being, going back to the old fashioned success story, like, okay, you know, you got to be a doctor or lawyer to succeed. Arts is not going to pay the bills, you know, and then you've got the whole gender issue and then you've got like the combination and you've got the whole world collapsing. And yet we're freaking consumed with like trans laws when we've got heat issues around the globe and it doesn't make sense. Yeah. Priorities are a little skewed. Um, but I think you, I love that point that we need to be letting the children who have a voice guide us, right? That they, they have a certain amount of wisdom, which we often don't yeah. want to acknowledge. I, I have one child who's considering, you know, college now and wants to be an interior designer. And although I am a huge fan of the importance of interior spaces being aesthetically mm-hmm. pleasing and functional, I, of course, want her to become an architect because, you know, <laughs> why be an interior designer when you can be an architect? And then you can do interior design, but with a much, you know, bigger title. And she's right. pushing back. And I had to sort of the other day say to myself, like, who the heck's, you know, this is not your battle. This is not yeah, your, this is not your life. Like, support her in what she wants to do. If she wants to study interior design, let her do that. You know, take your ego and check it at the door. Back off. Or you can say that you're creating these ideas for her to push against. If you don't have that for her to push against, then where does she have her parameters to think around this issue? Yes. So, Good point. Right? I helped her really, really identify her original thought that she absolutely wants to be an interior designer. Of course, what she wanted. Yeah. And, you know, going back to that, again, I'm going to go back to my, my older son who had um, substance abuse thing is I really had to unlearn or relearn what it means to learn (laughs) because you know he refused college and maybe he's in a very different space but then i think about what his world is when he goes and embraces the ocean for example you know when he goes and learns about um life through diving and fishing and surfing so what does it mean for him to immerse in a in a, a body of knowledge that is liquid it is so interesting. And when he comes back telling me that he's heard, you know, he hears the whale singing or if, um, you know, these sharks attacks that that fish he just caught and what that means to him or, you know, it's just there's, it's just uh, goes back to this deeper sense of understanding things is do we need books necessarily to only books to to acquire knowledge? What does it mean to learn? What is the ocean literally? teaching us or if you're embracing nature in different ways what are those aspects that kind of inform us that are deeper right i'm a huge goosebump right now the idea of your son and your acceptance of him learning from the ocean and i think we um as parents often have a fixed idea of success and we say we want our kids to be happy and healthy we say that's our number one goal to be happy and healthy right but um then we often get into these power struggles about what are you going to do with your life get a job clean your room you know and we beat these kids up and we make them question 
things that maybe they're struggling with deep down inside that we have no access to at the appropriate points, right? And so really to trust our children on their journeys, which can be the hardest thing for a parent to say, what you're doing right now makes no sense to me. I worry that you're going to become houseless and on the streets if you don't, you know, change this journey's direction. Um, But really allowing them the space and time of that messy journey. um, So important. Yeah. Yeah. Well said. My um, one of my children last night, we had a long discussion about what it means to be part of the LGBTQIA spectrum. And uh, I have a child who identifies as gay, but doesn't identify with any of the other sort of parts of that rainbow flag. And we had a really great discussion about like, can you be a part of something, but not fully accept the whole thing or still be struggling with parts of it? Um, And it really taught me so much. And it started out as sort of a funny conversation because I, of course, was tripping over my tongue about things and they were correcting me. Um, right, right. We can't get the terms right, right? <laughs> it's like always yeah. something. And that's yeah. not an excuse. They're like, okay, old lady, that's not an excuse. Like, seriously, <laughs> use your words because words matter. Yes, yes. And that's okay. where the blurry space kicks in too because then you find new ways to describe things. So you're not um, limited to what we think we know, right? Or what we were taught to know. And things are, we have to, it's harder to unlearn, I think, than to learn, right? Yeah, we have core values and core identity stuff that is hardwired from a young age in our brains that trigger us to do things without us even being aware most of the time, right? Yeah. Like even like recycling bags, my mom is useless in recycling because she doesn't have that in her, her, her system of knowing. But so how do you do that? How do you get somebody to say, okay, no, we can sort, we can do this. We can, you know, rethink things, but it, 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 it's a painful process. And, you know, going back to my, um, the blurring the color line, one of the biggest questions that came up that, that always tend to come up is can an older generation know thinking change? So if we're talking about racism, for example, and you have these ways of thinking because of the past, the way it was segregated, because of this racialized way you were brought up, does it make it okay for you to have these discriminating views and can one unlearn? And it's really quite difficult because if your whole way of thinking was based on this very segregated, rigid way of you know, dividing, then how? How does a person come to look into those in-between spaces? You know. It's one of the things I loved about your movie, Blurring the Color Line, so much is that it was a very quiet, subtle movie in ways. There were no like racial pyrotechnics. There were no like, you know, violent moments. Well, there were a few things described, but there was no like, no huge sort of slap you upside the head, you know, Asian, African-American, black, Asian, you know, but it worked on me over time in such a deep way, because what I realized about your exploration of, I don't want to mischaracterize it, Chinese or Asians in the deep South, Mm -hmm, it wasn't mm -hmm. just Chinese, right? It was Asians in general. Well, yeah, it applies to so many, right? Yeah. Marginalized communities. Right. But in the movie, it was mostly Chinese Chinese, in the deep South. And just, I had never contemplated, you know, Chinese and African-American black people living side by side at a time when 
both groups were getting the raw deal from the white yeah. majority, right? right? right. And right. Um, I think the more we can take the time to say, I don't know much about this. I'm going to go learn about this thing that I've never thought about, right? The yeah. more the more inclusive we become in our thinking, the more open we become. Exactly. Right? Yeah. See, again, it's that multiple layered lens. We can do things like that. It's not just one way or the other. Yeah. And what it gives you, I think, then is um, a view of your own life and your place in the world. Because I think so often we forget that we are such a small part. We we so quickly become... Um, uh, seduced by the idea that our world and our reality is everything, right? Um, yeah. So if you can sort of see yourself in the context of, oh my God, there are all these incredible things happening all over the place every minute of the day. Um, you know, how can I learn more about what's going on and how can I then be a positive contribution rather than just obsessing about my own little whatever it is? And I Absolutely. think as parents, if we're on that path, even if it doesn't look like pursuing a PhD, but it looks like picking up a newspaper, reading mm -hmm. something that you didn't previously know much about and sharing that with your kids. Exactly. You know, just letting your kids know that there's constantly things to be excited about and to learn about. And I think you embody that, not just because you did a PhD, but because you do a talk show and you're looking at new ways of seeing things and you're trying to be a really good enough parent to three very dynamic interesting different children thank you <laughs> what's your it's, daughter up to right now can you share well she was at nyu shanghai she's back for the summer and she's this is interesting she um has this idea to study how the mind the younger generational mind is softened because of social media and all these ways and her her whole research is 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 um, inspired by this and how your mind can overcome these, um, your, your physical and your mind can, you know, empower yourself to overcome all these softnesses that are given to you by society now. So she goes on these crazy hikes and she doubles up on these exercises, which is kind of really kind of crazy. So I admire her for pushing herself to that extreme because we don't, we get soft now, you know, um, again, going back to learning from your kids is, is so important. Yeah. And her journey, if I remember, I remember a few months ago, or maybe it was years ago at this point, because time is so weird and elusive, yeah. but she was on a certain track and then she made a really like strong, right turn. And I remember yeah. you were like, ah, and then you supported her in doing it. Was it going to the kibbutz? Was it like just stopping? Before the kibbutz, she was going to go, she was a ballet, she was in tunnel vision ballet world for her mm -hmm. whole childhood, right? All the way up through high school um and then i guess you know covid does mess with you and it opens up opportunities but she decided to take a gap year semester off and went off to the rockies and went hiking for three months in the winter and came back a hippie came back um resisting refusing all those material things that she was once comfortable with she doesn't wash her face anymore i mean it's her skin's probably better now than it ever has been because she doesn't use products <laughs> she's like an environmental you know like complete hippie so yeah it's just interesting how things can transform you so deeply because of like one experience you know yeah and if you're a traditional parent and you're like hell no you're not you're like not going to college and going hiking for three months right but the mind expansion that happened for her oh. In that time and the direction and the clarity that came from that exactly. space, huge. 
No, the connections of your emotions and your body and your spirit and all these deeper ways of, of living is, is is so valuable. You know, yeah. I wish I did that when I was young. But then again, you can't say you wish this. You just, you know, you go on with what you do going forward. Right? Everything along your journey had a purpose and got you to where you mm -hmm. are now. And I, I mean, we can't give all the credit to you, but I want to get a lot of give a lot of the credit for her amazingness to you because mm -hmm. I'm sure having a mother who was constantly embarking on exciting projects and pushing herself, right? You may not have done a three month hike in the mountains by yourself, but you've done a PhD, you know, which is the equivalent of another mountain, right? Another yeah. mountain to climb and you will too. So we continue to climb our mountains. We have to. All right. So as we wrap up, I feel like we just barely skated the surface because there was so much I wanted to talk to you about, but we can't keep people, um, listening to us for hours and hours, even though I wish we could and they would. Um, let's let's summarize with some of the things that you feel were most important to you as a parent, if you can go there. Maybe wow. things that you learned from your own childhood, good or bad, things you did or didn't repeat, what was conscious and what you now think was maybe unconscious in your parenting, where you felt like you had wins and where you felt like you really screwed the pooch. You know, if I had to kind of, um, and I don't like labeling, but if I had to label the type of parent that I am, you know, with all those terms of, again, I, the helicopter mom that I had mentioned earlier, I, I think I, I like to think of myself as a free range mom, you know, allowing the, the little chicks to run around and roam. Because sometimes um, if you don't allow people and you see them, they're people, right? And you don't allow them to uh, explore on their own terms without someone breathing behind their backs and wiping their backs down every time they're sweating. They're never going to grow. And they need to learn how to fall within a safe space, obviously, but then maybe open up the parameters a little bit, you know? Um, and, and I feel like that's kind of contributed to the adventurous spirit that they might all have. Um, for better or for worse, because, you know, if you're going to strive for success in the, the, the traditional terms, then I've failed, maybe. I don't know. And I don't like to go there because I feel like they um, they have created their own versions of success. And I think that's most important. And um, and I don't know how I did that because I grew up in a very conventional, very um, quite coddled and conservative um, upbringing. So I think I resisted that and I allowed my kids to to flow um, and be free wild babies because it, it's it's beautiful to see them kind of find their own path, you know? Yeah, it is. Well, I'm, I'm really grateful you were able to share a little bit with us today and I'm hoping that everyone will watch Blurring the Color Line and we'll put how and where to find it and your new Think Tech talk show um, coming up starting Thank today. You. You're starting to record, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, Anything that you're currently obsessed with that you want people to know about or think about before we go? Mushrooms. Oh, we talked about this. Yes. Mushrooms. Yeah. But, you know, I had I, last time I told you about my la favorite book, the, um, what's it called? Mushrooms at the End of the World by Anna yes. Singh. And I'm reading one right now on my bookshelf called Entanglement. And that's a more scientific look, but it's actually a bestseller now. I forget the author's name. Shame on me. But um, it's, it's a beautiful book about the you know, the mycelial connections and how mushrooms, the, the 
are the connectors of the world. And, and if we apply that idea of how we all are connected beneath the ground, even on the surface, we're so far apart, it brings us together. We see this beautiful kind of um, community um, communicating, even when we don't think we are. And, and it's just a, a, a fascinating look at life through mushrooms and i highly recommend people to see it you know read it, it entanglement so that's i have to say it the fungus among us right <laughs> we are all and so I connected tried mushrooms yet i need to try that apparently they're a thing microdosing <laughs> is being used more and more in therapies yes maybe there we should go. do that um so mushrooms for those who don't understand this uh, I'll put stuff in the show notes, but it's it's not it's not a joke. There is a no, serious it's awareness a way of understanding the whole network of humanity. Really, we are connected, which is why we have to stop thinking in such siloed, insular ways. We are all connected. Yep, it's the messiness. I'm telling you, it's the entanglement and the messiness that we've been talking about this whole hour. It's brilliant. The blurriness, it all. Well, Crystal, Dr. Kwok, my friend, Crystal. Thank you. This has been really fun. I appreciate yeah. you giving us an hour of your time, and uh, I look forward Pleasure was to mine. sharing with people. You open up such an important space. Thanks, Christine. Thank you, Crystal. Talk soon. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. episode of a really good enough parent podcast if you enjoyed this episode i'd love it if you'd leave me a rating or subscribe subscribing helps boost my ratings and rating me obviously helps boost my ratings but only if you liked what you heard but apropos that whether or not you do or don't like this i really do like feedback so please drop me a line if you'd like let me know if there's someone you want me to interview or a certain topic you'd like me to tackle you can find out more about a really good enough parent podcast on the Pono Roots website at ponoroots.org. That's P-O-N-O-R-O-O-T-S dot org. Pono Roots is a nonprofit program, and if you wish to support our work, donations are always welcome. And with that, I'll leave you a quote from Carl Jung and something that my children remind me of every day. You are what you do, not what you say you'll do. Thank you. Take care. Aloha. George loves Detroit.